let's figure this out. What I want to do this morning, and I know you can understand this passage, at least understand it better. There are parts of this passage we can't understand. But my hope is that what Paul is driving us towards is praise at the end of chapter 11. It's obedience beginning of chapter 12. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 should cause you to obey and love God more. It should. It should absolutely do that. And so I want you to understand it because I know I don't love God as much as I should. I'm sure you look at your own heart and say, I don't love God to the degree I should. I don't obey him to the degree that I should. And so these chapters should help with that. And so let's understand this passage. I'll give you guys handouts this morning um, just because I know the world's going to die. So I used a lot of paper. No, there's a lot of verses going on and I don't want to spend time flipping through. I want you to understand this. You got to track the argument. So we're going to look at four questions this morning. Four questions that'll help us understand this outline. And my hope, praise, obedience, worship. So let's ask the first question. It's this. You can write it down. First question is this. What is Paul's main point? In fact, I think most of understanding chapters 9, 10, and 11 has everything to do with understanding verses 1 to 6. If you can understand verses 1 to 6, you'll understand where Paul is going. And it is a strange beginning, right? Look at verse 39. Nor height, nor depth, of right above in Romans 8. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cue the praise music. Cue the lights. This is amazing. Chapter 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. What? Where, where, did, this, where did this come from? Why, why does he have this, uh, this sadness, this grief? He's, he's not just despondent. He's not depressed. He's assertive. I'm telling you the truth. I am despairing. Why? Why does Paul despair here? Well, verse 3 begins to give us the answer. For I wish, for, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Now, now think about this. Paul is saying, I have a desire that if possible, I wish that I could be damned in the place of other people. Not possible. Romans 8 just said, nothing can separate you from the love of God. But I wish it could happen, says looking on verse 3, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 4, they are Israelites. So Paul is an Israelite, and he wished he were cut off for the sake of his fellow Israelites. Why? Let's keep reading. See, to them belong adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What Paul is saying is, I wish I was cut off for my fellow Israelites, who despite all these blessings, despite growing up going to to synagogue, despite having the heritage... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob from their line. Jesus in their line. They are lost. And he mourns over them. And he's weeping over them. And he's sadness. He's sad over the lost state of those who know some of God's truth, 
but are obviously outside of the kingdom. Christianity, at the time this writing, is a, not a new religion. It's a continuation of, God's, of God, what God's been doing, but it's a change in Jewish thinking. It's different than what Jewish thinking was at the time. And those who were once inside the kingdom look like they're outside the kingdom. And Paul is burdened for them. We'll talk about this more next week, but maybe just to give you a sneak peek ahead. I wonder how many of us ever feel that kind of burden for lost people. That Paul says, I am in despair. I wish even I could be accursed so that they could be saved. What a strong statement. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Why did he jump to sadness? Maybe, maybe we could uh, psychoanalyze Paul a little bit. And some of you would say, well, you know, Josh, Paul's been through a lot. Shipwrecks and persecution. He once had stones thrown on him so much that they thought he was dead. And he's been beaten. Paul, you know, Paul's experienced a lot of trauma. A lot of toxicity in Paul's life. And so, obviously, he's going to randomly break out into tears from time to time. No, that's not what is happening here. Okay, that's, that's not what's going on. Why does Paul bring up Israel? Let's think about this. Romans 8, it was just said that God has made some promises to you. And nothing will separate you from these promises. Nothing will separate you from God's love for you. And if you're listening, you're thinking, wait a second. I've read about some promises of God before. He's made some promises to some people in the Old Testament, this nation of Israel. And now all those Israelites look like they're outside the kingdom. So you're telling me God's promises are this for my life. But I'm looking at them thinking, God's promises don't seem like they mean very much for them. So how do I know that he'll be true for me? Does that make sense? God has made some, Paul has mentioned some amazing promises of God in Romans 8. And what he's doing is he's combating the argument that someone might bring up and say, well, Paul, God's made some promises in the past. And those don't seem like they're going to be true. So how do I know that they're going to be true for me? Now you understand what's happening here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the proof that Romans 8 is true. If you love Romans 8, if you love the end of Romans 8, then you need Romans 9 because Romans 9 is the proof, is the evidence that Romans 8 will stand fast, will stand true. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. That's his main point. The lingering question is, it seems like God's promises aren't true. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, But it is not as though... The word of God has failed. If you're looking for a thesis statement, if you're looking for a main point of chapter 9, 10, 11, you can underline it right there. 9, 10, 11 prove it is not as though the word of God has failed. It did not fail for Israel, and therefore it's not going to fail for you either. And you see, so these chapters, as sometimes as confusing as they might seem, they're supposed to be for confidence. They're supposed to help you think, Wow, God's promises won't fail. I can trust them for my life as well. At stake here is the back end of Romans 8. So here's, here's Paul's main point. You ready? The main point for Paul is that, that the lostness of so many Israelites, 
Right? The lo- all these Israelites that thought they were part of the kingdom now look like they're not. The lostness of so many Israelites is not an argument against God's faithfulness. That's what Paul's trying to show. The lostness of so many Israelites is not an argument against God's faithfulness because God has always been true, has always been faithful to true Israel. Say that again. The lostness of so many of the Jewish people is not an argument against God's faithfulness because God has always been faithful to true Israel. Even if, you don't even, even if you don't understand that yet, have that thought in your head. That's what Paul is going to try to prove. And that's what he takes two and a half chapters to prove. So that's number one. What is Paul's main point? His point is to show God has always been true to true Israel. That was verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The ones who belong to Israel, God has always been faithful to. Which leads us easily to the second question. In fact, some of you could probably already guess the second question. Does anyone want to guess question number two? Anyone want to go for it? What's the obvious question then after those first six verses? Come on. Yeah. Who is true Israel? Very good, right? That's the question number two. Who is true Israel or who is real Israel? That's what Paul wants to break down. That's what he wants us to think about as we go through this passage. And what he's going to do, he's going to help us to think about true Israel with three different sorts of pairs. It's not this, but it's this. It's not this, but it's this. It's not this, but it's this. So look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. It's not flesh, but promise. What does that mean? We'll figure that out in a second. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, though they were not yet born, it doth nothing, neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election, here it is, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Okay, so not of the flesh, but of the promise, not because of works, as of him who calls. And the third one is in verse 16, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's these contrasts that Paul's going to show us to help us understand who is in mind here when God says he's always kept his promises to true Israel. Let's, let's start breaking this down. Let's look at verse 7. He says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul is arguing, saying not every ethnic Israelite is part of Israel. And he begins by quoting Genesis 21.12. What's what's happening in Genesis 21.12? This goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, you learned about, you sang the song in children's ministry. You know, Father Abraham had many sons, many had, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just, you know, praise the Lord, I guess. So that's, that's how the song goes, and roughly. Um, <laughs> I could have sang with some more oomph, I guess, but uh, that wouldn't have been pleasant for anyone. Um, so anyway, he's going back to Abraham, and Abraham was promised that his line, his descendants, would be a blessing to the nations, uh, that there would be this line of promise that would continue. And in Genesis, uh, earlier in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and Sarah are not able to get pregnant. They are old. 
So Abraham has a son with, uh, with one of Sarah's maidens named Hagar. And the son's name is Ishmael. And yet God comes back and promises, you know, through Isaac will be your line. That's in Genesis 18. That's the verse that's referenced there in, Roman, in uh, verse 9 right there. He says, no, no, Isaac, you are going to have a child, even though you're old. I promise you, I'm going to allow your wife to conceive. And that child born through Sarah named Isaac is going to be the one who's born. Well, here, this verse in Genesis 21, again, let's take a look at this right here. We're in in verse 7, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is a reference to Genesis 21. What's happened is that Abraham and Sarah have had a baby. And and Sarah is joyful. uh, Laughter of disbelief, how good God has been to them. And in Genesis 21, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is mocking to a degree, laughing at this newborn Isaac, the one who God has promised will be the line. And so in the midst of that, what does Sarah do? She says, get that kid out of here. He's not there anymore. He's not part of the line. Get him out of here. And it says that Abraham is uh, debating this. Why? Because it's always good to have a backup plan, right? We like backup plans. Some, some of you, some of you, your Friday nights and Saturday nights are purely based off, does this still allow me to have a backup plan? Can I go hang with these people if it doesn't ruin my backup plan, right? Well, God does, or sorry, Abraham doesn't want to send Ishmael away. Why? Because he's the backup plan if something happens to Isaac. What does God tell him though? He tells him, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right? That's, the, that's the reference here. That Isaac is going to be the line of promise. Here's Paul's point. Bring, like, why bring up this story, Paul? Because which of the two, Ishmael or Isaac, were uh, genetically related to Abraham? The answer? Both of them. They both were his offspring. But it's not about who's related. It's not according to the flesh. It's according to the promise. Where was the chosen line? Through Isaac, through God's promise, through God's choice, not by genetics, not by birth, but through promise. By the way, that's a very good reminder for us that it has nothing to do with family or heritage or, uh, or those who are related to that saves us. None of us in here can be saved by being related to the right people. It wasn't the case then, it's not the case now. Anyway, what you see hinted at here is what some of you have already brought up. That it was through Isaac because that was the line that God has chosen. And this brings up the reality, it's a word that Christians use, of election, of choice. That God chooses who will be his people. That God chooses out of the, the mass of sinners, those who will rescue you, or those who he will rescue, those who, who he will choose to come to him by faith. And this reality is, outside of Romans 9, all over the place. So Ephesians 1, I have these verses on your handout because I don't want us to take the time to turn to them. But Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for, the adopt, for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's that he chose us because he chose us. That he chooses those who will come to him. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Ben preached that a couple weeks ago. I love, uh, I love Revelation 13, 8. Talking about those who are going to be punished. They will dwell on earth, will worship it. The it there, by the way, is the beast. Everyone, notice this, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So check this out. Before the world was even created, God chose sinners for whom he would have his son die for. Sinners who Christ would come and pay the penalty for their sin. God chose them before the world began. It's amazing. And then he finished that choice. He delivered on that promise. It's all over. John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God chose a people. And so now that we're back in Romans 9 for a second, what you see, it's, it's not every ethnic Israelite, not everyone related to Abraham that was saved, but it was those according to the promise, the line that God has chosen. That's our first Old Testament example. Let's look at this second one. The second one, it's the second one, then he goes to the story of Isaac as an adult with his wife, Rebecca. Look at verse 10. It says, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac. You see, Rebecca finds out that she's pregnant. And she finds out that she's pregnant with twins. God tells her that she's going to have twins. And he tells her, according to verse 12 at the end, that the older will serve the younger. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 25. Now, why was this important? Well, what's Paul trying to highlight here? They were twins. Okay, usually, in that day, which, which son would get the better inheritance? It was the, uh, it was the older son. But how much older is one twin than another? Not much, right? These are two people that are born at the same time. Look at the text. It says, neither had done good or bad. What is Paul demonstrating there? Paul is demonstrating that God's elective purposes are not based on morality. He chose true Israel The true Israel is the chosen Israel, and he chose them, those who really belong to the family of God, based on, well, not merit, based on his own decisions. No one earned it. He chose because he chose. He chose Jacob because he chose Jacob, and he didn't pick Esau because, well, he didn't. Now, you have to look at verse 13. Verse 13 is really hard to digest. Thank you, Timmy, for bringing it up earlier. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. That is a hard verse. You need to be able to explain verses like that. And by the way, you don't have to worry about someone bringing it up because this verse is really, really, though tough, it's really, really clear. There's two things you have to get over to understand that verse. To understand that verse, you you have to get over the difficulty of God uh, hating the lost. 
It is a biblical truth. Look, God loves the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. But God hates sinners, individuals who rebel against him. And you two right there in the middle, you got you to lock in right here. Yeah, this, this is big time. God hates sinners. So take a look in your hand out there, Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or Psalm 115, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the sin, not the sinner. Is that what it says there in Psalm 11? No, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I mean, even the word wrath has emotion built into it. You don't just go, here comes my wrath now, right? There's anger behind it. And God is angry with sinners who constantly rebel against him. Even those who've had the heritage, even those who've had the teaching and the law. He is irate, furious, angry with sinners. So you got to be okay with that language because sinners have chosen to hate God and he responds by hating them. Remember, Esau rejected the promises of God. He sold his birthright for soup. And you could read that in Genesis. I'm not making that up. That's a true sentence. But the other thing you need to help you understand this is the context. So I think I put Malachi 1 on your hand. Did I put Malachi 1 on your handout? Okay, so Malachi 1. So this verse is not quoted from Genesis. Uh, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. This verse is actually quoted from uh, over a thousand years later. Uh, in the book of Malachi, when Israel is looking at God saying, God, you say you've loved us. You've not loved us. How have you loved us? When have you shown us loved? And what does God say to them in Malachi? So you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. What? That's a funny illustration. What does that mean? God is saying, you say I don't love you? Isn't it obvious that I've loved you and have not loved Esau? Let me ask you, how many of you have read about Jacob and Esau before? You've read at least some familiar? Tell me, which one was morally superior? Not, like, you can't point to one over the other. You, you can't say, well, Jacob was clearly the better guy. right? He's a bad dude. But, but then why do his descendants still exist? Over a thousand years later, but by the time Malachi is written, the country of Edom, the descendants of Esau, is like nothing. By the way, has anyone met any Edomites today? Right? Not around. Why? Then why are there still Israelites? Because God sets his love on whom he loves. Because Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. They exist. Why? Because of their ingenuity? Because of their morality? No. Because God chose them. And he chose them, not based on one was better, but when they were equal. This helps us understand something. I have an illustration for you guys because I, I, I like to illustrate things. And I use, I use physical illustrations today because we'll work with it. Now, the only problem with this illustration is my hand is too large to actually get all the way in there. But we're going to make it work anyway. So let's, let's try to give it a shot. So here's what this is not saying. What some people make the mistake of thinking is that this is teaching that here is all of humanity. 
morally neutral, right here in the middle. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. And what God does is he plucks some out and he goes, okay, uh, wrath. Uh, okay, I'll love that one. Let's see who else I got here. Okay, well, this guy, okay, I'm going to, no, I'm going to love that one. Okay, that, that's what people do. They think here's morally neutral humanity and God kind of divvies them out. That is not what this is saying at all. That is not true. The reality is not three categories. The reality is there are two categories right here. All of man is lost in sin. Loves their sin, hates God um, from the atheist to the the semi-religious. I'll go to church, but let me get out of as much God stuff as possible. All of God, all of humanity is running from Him, rebelling as, as much as they can. And out of that humanity, God in His mercy grabs some, and then I mean He grabs some according to His elective purposes. Not one's better than the other, right? Because how do you like? Rebel against God in a more moral way than other people. You don't, but God in his grace has said, I'm going to choose some out. That's God's elective purposes. Not good or bad. Reality, both of them were bad. That's what this is helping us see. Let's look at this third one here. This is the third little section. I'm not on the third question, but this third Old Testament example. We, we see him talking about mercy, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? By no means. He's saying never. God is not being fair. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Again, we have to think about where he's saying this. This is being taken from Exodus 33. Now, before we go there, there's somebody who knows it. Exodus 32. What just happens in Exodus 32? Somebody knows it. Anybody know it? Yeah. Golden calf. Exodus 32, God miraculously delivers Israel from Egypt, splits the Red Sea, destroys the Egyptians who've oppressed them for 400 years, and Israel says, we're going to worship the cow god. It's what they do at the mountain where we've seen them for 40 days. And God should absolutely wipe all of them out. I'm going to wipe them all out, Moses. I'm starting over with you. And Moses pleads, and he begs God, Do not wipe out your people. And God responds by saying, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I owe compassion to none of them, but I will have compassion. And the people I'll have compassion on are the people I'll have compassion on. It's his purpose. It's his his freedom to do so. We'll talk about that in a second. In fact, not only that, but verse 17 and 18, he talks about hardening Pharaoh's heart. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and I will harden whom I hardened. And so it is not by uh, will, it is not by determination that you make yourself a believer, it's by God's sovereign electing purposes. By the way, do you, you understand what that word harden means, right? I think we've talked about that before. It, it has the idea of strength. It, it's to give boldness to. Um, so you're going to take your big test. Or dudes, you're going to ask this girl out that you've, you've never even said more than four words to before. And, and, you're, and all your buds are like, dude, you got this. Come on. Go for it. And you're like, all right, I got it. Here we go. And it doesn't go well. Um, okay, that, in a very trivial way, is a little bit what it's like for God to harden. Harden does not mean like, I want to obey, but I'm being hardened, right? Harden is God saying, you want to disobey against me? Hey, go 
keep going. You're doing great. Keep disobeying. Like, oh, ooh, uh, going to church and thinking that you can like rebel against me, deceive us, go for it. He hardens whom he hardens. And he has compassion on whom he has compassion. He has the right to harden all of us. He has no obligation to have compassion on any of us. But he has the freedom to show mercy on whom he has mercy, verse 18, and harden whom he would harden. That's a lot of what we just looked at there. That's all, all of that is question number two, which is who is the true Israel? So who is the true Israel? Let's pull back here for a second. Romans 8, God has this unbreakable promise of love. Romans 9, ah, but is it for me? Because it doesn't look like his promises were true for Israel. Romans uh, 9, verses 7 through 18 now. No, you don't understand. His promises for true Israel, elected Israel, have always remained true. He's always remained faithful, always set a love on them. If you're a believer, student, you are loved by God because God chose you. You did not earn it. You did not curry his favor in any way. He set his love upon you in eternity past despite your sins. And what Paul is arguing is that that truth isn't just supposed to bend our minds a little bit. It's to give us courage that his promises won't fail. Here's a question. How do you know God will never stop loving you? How do you know? Because of Romans 9, you realize it's because he never started loving you. So there wasn't a time where he didn't set his love upon you if you're a believer. So there won't be a time where he stops setting his love upon you. Okay, that is really encouraging. That should cause us to worship and praise and delight in God. That's where we're at so far. Now let's ask question three, the question that all of you really want to ask, which is this. Is God fair? Is God fair? Is this right for God to do this, to, to pick some and not pick others? You, you, you feel it in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Said differently, how could God condemn anybody? Right? He's the one who didn't choose them, so how could he judge anyone? Does this accusation hold? And the answer to, is God fair? The answer is yes. It's yes. And I'm going to give you three yeses. So thank you for working through the, the Old Testament portions. Let's, let's think through three yeses here. Yes, number one, I think I gave you some sub-blanks here. Yes, because God is free. Yes, because God is free. That is, he has the freedom to do what he wants because he's God. Now, this isn't the only argument, but it's a strong argument. It's not where he stops, but it's a pretty firm beginning that this is the only answer he'd have to give. Verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? God, you didn't choose me. Time out. Who are you, hypothetically, that you could speak to God in that way? Who are you? You're here one minute and gone the next. You are about anywhere between 40 to 80 years away from nobody remembering you existed on this planet. You only have breath because God gave you breath. You have any significance because he's significance. Who are you to speak to him? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why did you make me like this? He uses a pottery illustration here, verse 21. Has the potter, the one who's working with the clay, has he have no right over the clay 
to make out of the same lump one vessel, one vase for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Friends, God owes us nothing. We can't trick him into anything. None of our knowledge, our theology, our works, can we bind God in any way? He is free to do as he wishes. That's, that's the first reason why it's very clear. God is being fair. But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at number two. Yes, yes, is God fair? Yes, because God is glorious. Because God is glorious. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God's desire is to show his glory, to show his character. And he would absolutely demonstrate his justice by punishing those who have prepared themselves for wrath. Absolutely would. And by the way, you want a God of justice. You want somebody that could make right all the wrongs. You, you want somebody right now that could go over to Europe and make right all the wrongs. We wish there was justice. We just don't like justice when we're the one that's in the wrong. And God will at the end demonstrate his justice, his ability to finally make all things right. But he does it now. Why not? Why doesn't he just wipe everyone out right now that's sinful? Take a look at verse 23. Verse 23. Sorry, look again at verse 22. It says, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Instead of wiping them out, what has God been? God has been patient. How true this is. How true this is with so many of us. That we're believers today because of the patience of God. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Oh, by the way, that's his promise to judge the earth. As some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He has been patient. Why? Because of verse 23, in order for the purpose of making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Why has God been patient? To display his mercy display his kindness so that he could demonstrate to the world, this is the God who rescues enemies. This is the God who saves sinners. This is the God who takes those who are running from them, stops them, and turns them back to bring them to himself. That's who this God is. It's so that we would celebrate and marvel at and be astonished by his incredible grace towards sinners. Who again, he has absolute freedom, no obligation to rescue. But he's done it. He's displayed his mercy to those who hate him. So that everyone would see, this is a God who saves. Often it is asked, how is God fair? Why not save everyone? And by that, you're treating salvation like elementary school. You remember elementary school? Remember Valentine's Day in elementary school? What did you have to do? You had to bring a Valentine for everyone because no one could be left out. Can I have a birthday party? Yes, you can. Why? Because no, but you have to invite everyone because no one can be left out. Listen, election is not God saying some of you get to sit in a suite at the stadium and now some of you don't even get to come to the game. 
That's not what's happening here. It's so much bigger than that. Stop treating it so like a juvenile. Treat it like this. God has said, here are people that hate me, and I'm going to choose some, some that my son would come and die for them. Here are hell-deserving sinners, and I will send my son to experience hell on behalf of some of them. That's incredible. That's incredible grace. And that is something that, why does God not save everyone? Why does he do that for anybody? But God demonstrates his mercy in saving some. So good. The third yes, I'm going to move here for the sake of time. The third yes is because God is consistent. God is consistent. God is not doing anything in Romans 9 that he hasn't always been doing. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do this part really quick. God is in the habit through these, these next two verses, those in uh, verses 25 and 26. That is a, that's a reference to Hosea. God was in the habit then of saying, people that weren't my people are my people. So he's extended this grace even to the Gentiles. Why? Well, because that's just what God has always done. He always extends his mercy and calls the people that weren't his people. Well, now they are his people. And check this out. God has always been in the habit of saving some out of Israel when all of them deserved punishment. That's what, if you look at that verse in 27, that, that verse says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, though there's so many of them, only a remnant of them will be saved. Why? Well, because in Isaiah 10, where that verse is from, they're evil. They're wicked. But God will still save some of them. How bad was Israel's sin? Here's how bad it was. You ready? Look at this next verse in 29. Here's how bad Israel was. This is a quote from Isaiah 1. The Lord, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Anyone ever met a citizen of Sodom? Any offspring from Gomorrah? Why? Because God totally wiped them out. The only reason that Israel is not like them because of their idolatry is God's electing purposes. Now you're seeing it, right? God is not electing morally neutral people. He's electing sinners to have his son come die for them. He's always consistently rescued a remnant out of there. So is God fair? Absolutely he's fair. He doesn't deserve to show this mercy to anyone. Let's look at our fourth question. Question number four is this. In light of all that we've seen today, and I, I think you guys are sticking with me. It's a lot. It's a big chapter. I'm glad we did it this way with handouts and conversation. Number four then is this. Is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do? In light of God's electing purposes, there is a temptation to embrace a sort of... Uh, fatalistic thinking. What does it matter if God has planned everything? Or why obey now? Can I just live it up now? Because if God is going to, if God has chosen me, he'll just save me anyway. Why share the gospel? If God's going to save his people either way. Or it's not my fault if I'm not a Christian. I'm not elect. Do those statements hold any water? Are they true? We'll see more on this next week. But the answer is that those statements are totally wrong. That we don't just shrug and say, we'll leave it 
up to God. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? Here's Paul's summary. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've attained it. Okay, that is a righteousness by faith. They've now then placed their, they didn't grow up thinking I need to worship Yahweh. I need to worship the God of Israel. Now they learn about Jesus, placed their faith in him and they've been saved. But Israel, who pursued a law, tried to be fastidious, tried to be good, did not succeed in reaching righteousness. Why not? Time out, lock in right here. This is, this you've got to hear. Because this is the, I think the most surprising part of this chapter. Why, verse 32, why did Israel not find righteousness? Here it is. Because they, and you expect Paul there in verse 32 to say, because they were not elect. And that is not what he says at all. Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why is Israel lost? Why were the, sorry, I shouldn't say all of Israel because Paul's Israel. Why were so many Israelites lost? Why are so many church kids lost? Why? Because God did not elect them? That is not true. They are lost because they tried to be righteous by their own works and because they've rejected Jesus. That's exactly where Paul goes. They're lost because of them, not because of anything I have done. Verse 33. As is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, speaking of Christ, will not be put to shame. Why are they lost? Because they have rejected Jesus Christ. The same is true today. People are lost and they cannot blame God because they have chosen to rebel against Christ. They have chosen to be saved by their own works and refuse him. They have turned personal responsibility. The Bible, friends, is clear all over the place that this is true, that man is responsible to turn to Christ. And I have these verses. These have to be true in light of Romans 9. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor, Matthew 11 on your handout, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Or, John 6, for this is the will of my Father, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Look, next week we're going to read Romans 10, 13. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's our responsibility to turn and trust in Him. See, God is not like so many of the contests we play. Right? We, we think about election as kind of like a raffle or we think about it like calling on a radio station for like the four of you that have, know what that is or, or like the sneakers app for you sneaker heads in here. God is not like, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to throw in there and say, I'd like to be chosen, but we'll see if God picks me. That's not true, friends. God rescues all who come to him, any who would come to him. We have to know the, the idea that I tried, but I wasn't picked is a lie. It's either a lie to excuse your own sinfulness. It's a lie to excuse your slothfulness and evangelism. It's a lie to blame God instead of you. But it is a lie. I could tell you on the authority of the Bible that if you this morning, in light of your sin, come to Christ, you will be saved. Look at John 6.37. I love this balance. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
All that the Father sovereignly gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that good news this morning? That if you come to Christ, you will not be cast out. So here's where we end, and then we sing one last song. Is there anything we can do? The answer is yes. There's a lot you can do. The first is you can repent and believe. You will not be able to use election as an excuse for refusing Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in him. Trust in God. Heritage, works, religiosity. Some of you are unsaved for the very same reasons that Paul is talking about here. You need to turn to Christ, which means repent, which means actually admit that you're a sinner. Own your sin, be broken over your sin, and trust in the Lord. Oh, how many people here will use the excuse that they're not elect? Simply because they just are never want to be sad about their sin. That even consequences you get for your sin, you go, well, they just misunderstood me. So that is not repentance. Here's the second thing you do. Pray and share the gospel. Pray and share the gospel. I'm going to tackle this more next week. I just want you to notice that election did not stop Paul from praying for unbelievers. 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Share the gospel. We'll talk about that next week. The final is this. You praise God. You praise God if you're a believer that he chose a sinner like you. That in spite of your wickedness, he chose to have his son, he determined to have his son die for your sins. And that his commitment never falters. Have you ever wondered why it seems like biblical Christianity asks so much more of people than other religions? Why is that? Other religions, you just give Sundays and Wednesdays, maybe your early mornings. But why does this require all of my life? Why, why do I need to entrust so much? You entrust so much because this God is so big, so kind, and so evidently trustworthy and gracious that the only response is to entrust your whole life to a God whose words never fail. We should worship him for that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for... This morning, this is a big, big topic, Lord. And I'm thankful that we looked at the big picture of it today. God, we are grateful that you are good and kind and gracious. That, Lord, you call all to turn and repent and follow after Christ. Lord, we know that any who turn to you, you will not cast away. Father, thank you for those of us that are believers that you've chosen us. Uh, we do not say that with any pride, any boasting, just pure gratitude. And we want to worship you for that purpose, Lord. Thank you that your promises never fail. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.